0: Well, happy Easter 2018 to everyone here. I hope you're having a wonderful Easter. I don't want to see another boring Easter. Sometimes it can just be like, yeah, it's just another day of the week. I want it to be more than that. And hopefully, hopefully today, maybe it will. But I want to begin by posing a question to us. And the question is, why did Jesus Christ come to die? That's the question. The question I want to pose why did Jesus Christ come to die? I want us to think about this because the common answer that I get is Jesus came to die so that my sins could be forgiven. And I need my sins forgiven because I don't want to go to hell. Not a false statement. Not a false narrative, just not the whole picture. There are many reasons why Jesus Christ came to die, and yet for many of us in this biblically illiterate Disneyland version of American Christianity, we know like one of those reasons, i.e. the one I just stated. And so today is part three of our Easter series. Some of you may remember Easter 2017 was part two. Easter 2016 was part one. This is today part three of our Easter series. Part three of 50, hopefully. It probably will be the longest sermon series ever preached. It is loosely based off of John Piper's book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. It's kind of a short devotional about one page per chapter and that I really thought was eye-opening. And so this is kind of a uh, the full-length version of the one page. And so... I'll give you the answer right now, the answer that we're going to examine today of why Jesus Christ came to die. And the answer is this, bottom line up front, Jesus Christ came to die to obtain all things that are good for us. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why he came to die. He came to die in order to obtain all things that are good for us. Or have you not heard that it was said? What then shall we say to these things? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor depth, nor height, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is our passage today. A beautiful, beautiful passage. So let us examine this text and the implications that it has for us this Easter 2018. He begins in verse 31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? To ask a question. What, what then shall we say to these things? And, and there's a big emphasis on the things of which he doesn't actually tell us what the things are. He rather expects us to know what things he's referring to. The preceding verses? Probably. All of Romans 8? Yeah, possibly. But he expects us to know the answer he's not going to give us the answer he just spent a lot of time talking about these things and he wants us to produce the answer to know the answer to say the answer what then shall we say to these things like i've been talking this whole time romans so what do you think about everything that i've said what do you think about it essentially paraphrase if god is for us who can be against us if God is for us, who can be against us? So there's, there's this emphasis, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? And of course it raises the question, well, who's the us that he's talking about here? Who, who, who is this us? Because that's, that's important to know, because whoever the us is, God's for them. And apparently no one can be against them. Who is the us? Well... The answer is certainly revealed to us in the preceding verses. And I'll, I'll read verse 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, the us. The us. God's for the us. No one can be against the us. Who are the us? Well, the us are those who love God. The us are those who are called by God. The, The us are those whom God foreknew. The us are those whom God predestined. And oh, by the way, for those whom He has predestined, He's called, He's justified, He's glorified. That's who the us are. The us are the predestined. The us are the called. The us are the justified. The us are the glorified. This is important. God's for us. God's for the us. That's that's good news. And and God's for the us in a way that he's not for everyone else. I'll say it again. God is for the us in a way that he's not for everyone everyone else. And John 3:16 3, 3, reveals this a little bit to us. The great in-zone verse for you football enthusiast, John 3:16. It shows us, right? It's for God so loves the world. He said, "Well, he loves the world." He does. He does. He shows his love for the world. And yet He's not for the world in the same way that he's for the us. I'll say that again because I'm maybe treading in dicey water right now. He loves the world. He's for the world. John 3.16 shows us that. But he's not for the world in the same way that he's for the us in Romans chapter 8.31. And maybe... You're thinking, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I agree with that, but keep talking, so I will. I understand trying to wrap your mind around that. He, he loves the world. He's for the world, but he's not for the world in the way that he's for the us. He's not for the for for everyone else in the same way that he's for the us. Did I hear that right? You heard that right. And And we struggle sometimes, I think, when we hear things or rather... Read things from this book. We struggle because we throw around cliches like God loves everyone. And certainly the fact that he loves the world, you could say he loves everyone. And that's not necessarily a false statement. It's just not the whole picture. There's more to the story. And that's certainly what we're going to look at. But we sometimes have a hard time, I think, wrapping our, our minds around verses in the Bible that deal with deep, heavy theological matters. We say, "Oh, God loves everyone," or whatever little cliche catchphrase that is popular, because oftentimes, for many of us, our theology is a very pop culture theology. Like we get our theology from The View or from Oprah or from some celebrity Twitter handle, and that honestly ends up being more influential to us than the pages of this book. It does. And so oftentimes we have these ideas in our head, what we think God is like, or how we think God should act, or what we think God should say. And so then we read a verse in the Bible and we say, no, I can't be talking about that. See, there's a difference between exegesis and eisegesis. When we exegete the text, we literally pull the truth out from it. When we eisegete the text, we literally take our own ideas and we push it back into the text and read it out. And that's honestly what often happens to many of us. We have this pop culture theology. Whatever's popular, whatever celebrity maybe tweeted about it, or Instagrammed it, or Facebooked it, whatever it may be. And so we go back to what I said. God is for the us. It's really important here. He's for the us, but he's for the us in a way that he's not for everyone else and yet you said Joe well god loves the world he's for the world yep but he's not for the world in the same way that he's for the us okay explain that okay i will if we understand john 3:16 that he loves the world he's for the world and we know that's true then how do we understand him? What's the nuance here? What's the difference in what you're saying between the us and everyone else and how he's for them? And here's the answer. The way that he is for the world, okay? You want to listen right here. The way that he is for the world is this. He's for the world in the fact that he sent his only son, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death on the cross, who was buried and three days later rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. So if you believe this, if you trust this, if you bow to him as Lord and not just embrace him as Savior, and a note about that, I say, bow to Him as Lord, not just embrace Him as Savior. Because a lot of us, a lot of people today, they want to have Jesus as Savior, but they don't want to have Him as Lord. They want Him as this get out of jail free card. As I said in the beginning, why did Jesus Christ come to die? And one of the common answers is to die for my sins. So I don't want to, so I don't go to hell because I don't want to go to hell. And many people want Jesus as nothing more than Savior. But to actually obey Him? To embrace him as Lord, Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, you'll obey me. Well, that's inconvenient. I just want good life, easy life, no hell at the end. I want, I want a savior. I don't want a Lord. I don't want to have to bow to you because there's an implication. If he's Lord, you cannot tell him no. You can't. You cannot tell him No. You cannot copy and paste what you want to do as a air quotes Christian. Okay, there's, there's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland here. You're either with him or you're against him. And so, how is he for the world? In what way is he for the world? In that he sent his only son. And if you believe him, if you trust him, if you bow to him, not just Not just embrace him as Savior, but bow to him as Lord. And if this happens, you will find yourself among the predestined, among the called, among the justified, among the glorified. You will find yourself joining with the Apostle Paul, as he says here in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? If you will but believe and trust him. If you will embrace him, not just as your get-out-of-jail-free card, not just as your Savior, but as Lord, then you will find yourself in the company of the us. In the company of the predestined, the called, the justified, the glorified, as Romans 8.30 makes abundantly clear. And so, for the us, and the us is important, right? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Implication, no one. So for the us, as I said, he's for the us in a really special way, a way that he's not for everyone else. For the us, for the elect, for the people of God, for the church, for the bride, he goes beyond that. He goes beyond what he is for the world. And he says, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. And you say, well, I've read the book of Acts before. He gets, like, beat up a lot. Or I've seen that new movie, Jim Caviezel, you know, Luke and Paul, and it doesn't go so well for him. There, There are people, there's people who's against him, right? So has he forgotten? No. He hasn't forgotten anything. He hasn't forgotten that he's been beat up and shipwrecked and stoned and imprisoned and beat up and imprisoned again. He hasn't forgot any of that. So what does he mean when he says no one can be against us, right? Or who can be against us? What what does he mean by that? And what he means is that when someone puts a knife to your throat or a bomb goes off in your church, like it did for many christians last easter in egypt when someone comes into your place of work your home and they shoot you they can't be against you and the fact that they can't succeed when those isis fighters march those Christians down the side of the beach in those orange jumpsuits. I mean, those images were everywhere in the news a few years ago, two, three years ago. And they have them kneel down and they take out their knives and they saw their heads off. When the bomb goes off in the church in Egypt and the heat incinerates everyone within a 20-foot radius instantly. When the bullet... Go through your chest and goes out the backside and kills you. That's what he means when he says no one can be against us. That's what he means. That they can't succeed. You cut my head off? You blow me up with a bomb? You pull that gun out and shoot me dead? You don't win. You kill me, I'm with Jesus, right? I'm with Jesus instantly. And all the saints... No, they can't succeed. You do this, you do this, you send me to glory. You can't win if you kill me. You can't. You kill me, I win, you lose. That's what he's saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? You kill me, you don't win. You kill me, you don't succeed. You kill me, you send me instantly to be with Jesus. It's like Paul says, to live as Christ, to die is gain. How can dying be gain? Because for Paul, he gets to experience Christ in a fuller, richer way. It's the same way that he can say, no one can be against us, and yet we know people oppose him. You kill me, you don't succeed at all in what you're doing. For having not heard the master say, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what Jesus says. And we think about these words, words maybe you've heard tossed around, because they're very, it's a very poetic passage, right? God is for us, who can be against us? And yet we know people can be up against us, people can't oppose us. But what he's saying is, you kill me, you send me instantly to be with Jesus. You don't win, you don't succeed, Mr. Isis combatant. Good news. (sighs) That's good news for us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. So he's going to argue from the greater to the lesser here. So if he can do something really, really big, he can do something really, really small. Say, I've got a pull-up bar in my garage. I can't do many pull-ups yet can do a couple but it stands to reason his arguments like this if you could do say 25 pull-ups that seems like quite a goal-worthy number but if you could do 25 pull-ups say you can do it then certainly you could do something like two or three pull-ups do you understand the logic right If, if he can do something really really big really really huge then certainly he could do something really really small that's the logic that's being applied here in verse 32. In other words, he did something so huge in the fact that he did not spare his son, his only son, Jesus, but he gave him up for us. So if that's true, then you can rest assured that he's definitely, most assuredly going to give you all thanks. If the former is true, right? If he did something as big and as huge in the fact that he didn't spare his only son, Jesus, then it stands to reason like you can take it to the bank that he is going to do something way smaller in giving you all things. It's too easy. Too easy. It's going to happen. And you say, graciously give us all things, all things. Sounds kind of prosperity gospel-like, doesn't it? He's give us, he's give us that relationship that I want. The car, that honor roll status, that job, that amount of money you want in your bank account. He's going to graciously give us all things. So you could easily see where, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I see it there, but... Prosperity gospel, no, no, not at all. We we know he's not talking about this. And and we know that he's not. this is not a prosperity type of package deal here. We know that. See, so how do you know that? Because verse 35 and 36, the very next verses, notice what they say. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. In case that's not clear enough, he goes on to say this. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. He's going to graciously give us all things. What does that mean? This is what it means. Answer, right here. When he says, I'm going to graciously give you all things, it means everything we need to make it to the end. Everything we need to finish the race. Everything that we need to stay the course. Everything we need to meet him and enjoy him forever. That's what he means He's going to graciously give us all things. And this is a promise that we can hold on to. And the promise is based on what he did, the much bigger thing that he didn't spare, his only son. And it reveals God's total commitment for us, right? God is for you, church. He's for you. He's for you. I mean, how could he not be for you? How could he not graciously give you all things after what he did not do? He did not spare his own son. He's for you. There's a commitment there. There's a promise to us. And yet for many of us, we don't feel that sometimes. Sometimes you think, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that. Maybe today you're like, I don't, I don't feel that. Like, I get it. I hear it. I'm not feeling it. And sometimes there's reasons for that. And sometimes we might think that he's not for us because maybe there's sin in our lives. Feels like he's a million miles away. Feels like he's not here with us anymore. Feels like he's not for us. That's what sin does sometimes. We were in Joshua last week. And of course, he says, be strong and courageous, Joshua, in order that you may be so careful to obey all the law that you might not deviate to the left or the right. Sometimes you might wonder why why I don't feel close to God or why it seems like I don't feel like what this verse is saying, that he's for me. Sometimes it's a result of sin. It's not that he's no longer with us. It's not that he's left us. It's that we've left him. And then it's like, wait, no, I, I don't feel this, right? Because we've gone and wandered off the reservation. Trying to find our happiness and satisfaction in something other than Christ. Or it's because our desires and affections to Christ have, have grown cold. Or, or maybe because, as I said earlier, you've bought into this pop culture theology only to be disappointed. Only to be Disappointed. Pop culture theology will disappoint. It's not just disappointing, it's demonic. Like if it's not rooted in, in God's word, it's demonic. It's the theology of demons. Just, just to be clear, which is so important that we examine everything with what the Bible says. Does the Bible say this? Does the Bible say this? That we see it there? Now it's not just disappointing, that pop culture theology, that's demonic. And for whatever reason, there are times in our lives where we say, and we just say, I don't feel that, right? I don't feel that he's close to me. I don't, I don't feel that he's for us. I see that he's saying that he's for us. I just don't feel it. And yet, that's just unthinkable. It is. If he did something so big, then surely he's going to fulfill this promise to do something so much smaller and graciously giving us All things. He's going to graciously give us all things. Why? Because he didn't spare his son and the night that he was betrayed in the garden of Gethsemane, there he is praying, Father, if this cup may pass from me, like may it be, but not my will, but your will. The cup, a reference to not just death, but the wrath of God, the wrath of a holy God being poured out on him. If it was just death, I mean, every man dies, but it was so much more than that. It was the wrath of, of a holy, righteous God, a God who is so holy, so pure, as the prophet Isaiah says, even our most righteous works are like filthy rags. And to know that the wrath of the Father and the fact that the Father hates sin, He hates it, is going to be poured out on the Son. He's not just going to die on the cross. He's going to take the wrath and fury of a holy, just, righteous God upon himself. That's when the Bible says that he was the propitiation for our sins. That's what the word propitiation means. It means to take the wrath of God and then turn it to favor so that when God looks at us, right? The us, when he looks at us, he doesn't see us as condemned. He sees us as that debt's been paid. That debt's been paid. It's paid. It's paid. Oh, no, this was much more than just, Lord, I just don't want to die. It's the wrath of God's going to be poured out on him. Something that's never happened in human history before. And so there's this guarantee here. There's this promise that he's going to graciously give us all things. All things. He's going to give you all things but that guarantee is not a guarantee for an easy life. It's not a guarantee for a life of comfort. It's not a guarantee for safety from our enemies. Right? We know this. This is what the Bible says. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. It's not a, a promise that that's not going to happen. Like many Christians, even today, suffer this sort of persecution. We pray for them every week. Asiya Bibi is still in her Pakistani prison cell. And unless God intervenes, she will be executed because she's a Christian. And the same thing with Andrew Brunson in Turkey. And thousands of others, we don't even know their names. In graciously giving all things, it's not a promise that we're going to escape persecution. It might come for each and every one of us. But it is a promise. It's a terrific promise. All things, all things. It doesn't mean all the things that we want. It means all the things that are good for us. All the things that we really, really, really need in order, as Romans 829 says, to be conformed to the image of His Son. All the things that we need to make it to the end. In the face of persecution. in the face of death, in the face of empty stomachs and starvation. Think how tempting it is someone puts a gun to your head and says, are you really a Christian? You better be sure because I'm about to pull the trigger. This is what the early Christians dealt with, right? It was high treason to confess Jesus as Lord. You know that that verse in Romans, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, it's usually referred to as this... I would say, semi-pagan prayer known as the sinner's prayer, right? So we say, oh, well, that's, if you confess to Jesus as Lord, that's the sinner's prayer. Really? You want to, you want to understand the implications? You confess that Jesus is Lord when the Roman soldiers are bringing him around their incense bowls and you are essentially doing the Pledge of Allegiance, you are confessing that Caesar is Lord. You confess that Jesus is Lord like many of the ancient Christians did. That means you're prepared to have a Roman blade open up your chest cavity. Spill out your innards. You want to confess to Jesus is Lord? You think about it. Tell you what, there'd be a lot less people getting saved saved today on Easter, right? A lot less prayers being prayed, a lot less hands, right? Oh, I want to get saved. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'm ready. I'm ready to make that decision. Really? Many of our brothers and sisters are, throughout this world, in the North Korean prison camps, their labor camps, the average life expectancy is less than 18 months. Are you ready? You really wanna confess them as Lord. Don't be so quick to. And yet there's this promise, right? Because with all the things I just mentioned, there's the temptation to, well, I don't know, man. That's, you're really raising the stakes right now, Joe. But then there's the promise, right? And the promise is he's for us. The promise is no one can be against us. The promise is he's going to graciously give us all things, all things, all things that we need to make it to the end in those moments especially. It's very similar to the other biblical promise in Philippians 4.19. 4.19, Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in his glory. In Christ Jesus, my God will supply every need of yours. And oh, by the way, that promise to supply every need of yours in Philippians 4.19, it's clarified. It's clarified by Philippians 4.12 and 13. And of course, everyone knows Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I can make that touchdown in the end zone or whatever, you know, post-game sports interview there is. I mean, Philippians 4.13 is like half the people at Liberty's life verse, I imagine. It's a good verse. I can do all things. What does all things include? Verse 12 of Philippians 4 clarifies what all things includes. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So when we say, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, all things includes hungering. All things includes needing. But they won't post that on t-shirts. Right? You won't see Philippians 4.12 on t-shirts because it doesn't sell well. I might hunger and need. I don't want that. Yeah, that's not going to be a bumper sticker I throw on my car. That won't get many likes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, everybody knows that verse. And all things includes making it, right? In those moments where you don't have food, in those moments where your needs go unmet, And so when we understand the promise, very similar promise there in Romans 8.32, that he's going to graciously give us all things, all things includes the ability to rejoice in suffering when many of those needs go unmet. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including rejoicing when I haven't had a meal for a few days. Rejoicing in those moments when... My mom didn't make it through surgery In a rejoicing in those moments when that prayer goes unanswered. Rejoicing in those moments when my enemies do terrible, terrible things to me, right? I can do all things. Some of you are like, I've never seen this application beyond a sports game. The ability to rejoice in suffering when those needs go unmet. It's paradoxical. It's biblical if he didn't spare his son then you can take it to the bank he's going to give you everything you need to make it to the end to the end that's why paul can say suffering but always rejoicing i mean who says this right yeah haven't eaten in a week right sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Just got stoned, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'm in prison again, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How do you do that? God, that's a miracle, right? It's a promise for us. He's going to graciously give us all those things in those moments when we really, really, really need them, in those moments when we're starving, when people are trying to kill us. He's going to give us all things, all things that we need. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ guarantees that we will be given all things, everything that we need in order to do his will and give him glory to obtain everlasting life. And you, you don't think you need this? You say, man, that is the most depressing Easter message I've ever heard. For many of us who are still being weaned off of the lollipop, cotton candy version of Christianity, I suppose that is more, maybe, maybe more depressing than what we're usually uh, expecting. And yet, I would say no, not at all. With the exception of the Apostle John, all of Jesus' disciples lived to die a martyr's death. Many Christians have given their lives and still do. Now, for those people who are in the trenches, for those followers of Christ, this isn't depressing. This is the best news ever. That he's going to graciously give us all things, all things to make it to the end because I don't know if I can make it to the end. Some of you are like, I don't know if I can make it to the end of the semester. I don't know that I can make it to the end because life is so hard and so painful and being a Christian, it's tough to know that He will give you everything that you need to run the race well to finish the course that's been set before you or have you not heard that he will begin a good work and you will bring it to completion it's not you being awesome it's him fulfilling the promise because if he wasn't willing to stop his son from being murdered then he most assuredly is going to fulfill this promise to graciously give us all things that we need in order to be conformed to the image of his son, to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for Easter. I pray that these words would pierce us, would change us. Our outlook, our commitment, and our hope in those moments when sometimes our felt needs go unmet, to know that you are for us. And you're you're for us in a way that you're not for everyone else. You're for us in a special way. And that no matter what persecution, what type of mistreatment we may face, that you're not going to stop being for us. That nothing can separate us from your love. Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from your love. Thank you God for the promise to graciously give us all things because if it wasn't for that I don't think I'd make it. And I know that Others wouldn't either. What hope that must have been for all the Christians who've been martyred in their faith to have that promise in that darkest hour. Thank you for what you did for us, Lord. You conquered sin. You conquered death. We owe you everything. We love you. Amen.